Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 155, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, just who will pay for the extra expense required to safely reopen our schools? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, what should we be doing to better prepare our students to get a job? Our expert and guest wrote a book on just that. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is June the 12th, 2020, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and middle school principal, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? Nick, it, I am fabulous, fantastic, and it's Friday. And how do you how do you like the new middle school principal title? Because in the past, you were you were serving what K through eight, or were you seven? Yes. Yes. Now, now you're. And I had pre. I had pre K on my campus too. Right, and so now uh, you're in your new district. I guess you're you're just focusing on that new district, and you are focusing on yes. a middle school. How has that been going this week? I guess you guys are planning, right? We are planning. Um, we're getting a lot of things ironed out, and this has been a great week. I've spent a lot of time with my administrative team and my office staff, and you know, I just feel so optimistic that despite the unknown. It's going to be a great year because we have to have a positive outlook in order to positively impact our school community. Um, our district has come so far with our response to COVID reopening plan, and I'm just really excited about that. We have a few things that need to be ironed out, such as um, finalizing exactly which board policies need to be modified, temporarily um, you know, stopped, or any new policies. So that's that's above my head, but that's really um, what's left to do and just tweak the actual plan that we have developed. And I'm telling you, I am a part of a great, collaborative, innovative, intelligent administrative team with my new school district. And it's so refreshing. Well, what has um, it, what has given you this, this confidence as you've kind of actually been having to put a plan and writing dealing with COVID-19? I think it's the simple fact that we're, we're all researching. Um, we are all reaching out to different administrators across the country. And then we meet almost every day um, on Zoom or Google Meets. And we're sharing other plans that have already been approved and established. We're sharing ideas. We are coming up with, you know, what might be a glitch, what how this might impact. And the greatest thing is that it is shifting the district in a direction it probably really needed to go in anyway, really ironing out and laying out an effective social, emotional learning and supports plan is a piece of the plan. And that probably needed to be in place before. But now it's like this whole pandemic has caused us to look at our practices, look at our supports, not just for students, but for the staff members. And then, you know, the impact on transportation, athletics, and then looking at spending our, our funding completely differently. 
Well, and we're going to get to funding and the cost of all these uh, potential changes in a little bit. But is there, I love the idea that, you know, every educator in the country is looking to each other for, you know, ideas and, and just motivation. And I, so I imagine, you know, everyone's using the internet and kind of exchanging, here's what we're doing, here's what we're doing. Uh, have you seen anything Absolutely. kind of bubble to the surface that you're like, oh, that that's brilliant? Um, everything is brilliant because <laughs> no one's ever been through this. You know what I mean? Right. So every idea that, um, we find out about, or if we, ha- I'll give you a great example. I participated in the Mississippi school board association, um, webinar this week where they were giving a back to school protocol, um, suggestions to superintendents across the state. And it was just really exciting as they opened, they identified maybe nine protocols that were really important to think about. And they showed a slide with those nine protocols. And I immediately just was thrilled because we already broke down our plan, um, starting off with small teams for those exact same protocols. And there were only a couple that we named differently. But I was like, oh, we are on the right path. And then as they continued with recommendations and suggestions on how things need to be done, I was texting my superintendent and telling her we are nailing it. Are you thinking that you're still going to start on time? Is that still on the radar? Yes. Okay. I believe we're going to start on time. I think the thing that we have, the one thing we have not voted on yet, because I think we want our plan to be board approved. And um, I want to say this before I answer that question. The different committees um, include the administrative team and counselors across the district. But then we also reached out and developed a district-wide teacher team, a district-wide parent team, and then the superintendent established a community partner team. And we had Zoom meetings with them this week to present the draft of the plan. And, you know, you really expect to get a lot of maybe negative feedback or resistance, but they were so impressed. They thought we had worked so critically and deeply and thought of so many things that they couldn't even imagine that we needed to prepare or plan for. And we got just a little bit of feedback from them. But with that being said, the next step is literally to fine tune the plan and then bring all of those different committees back to the table again, show them the final plan that we've come up with after incorporating their feedback, then take it to the school board so that we can actually vote on which model we're going to implement in August, whether it's 100% virtual or the hybrid model, we know reporting back normal um, as of like last August is not going to happen. So I'm really looking forward um, to what everyone's vote is going to be. I'll tell you that I really think the hybrid model um, is going to be the way we're going because it'll allow us to see every student at least twice a week. Um, We might be able to see our primary children every day because obviously you cannot teach a child how to read by not seeing them daily. Well, okay, so this is kind of news for me because I've kind of been under the impression, I know you're one school district, but it's interesting to hear school districts having to narrow this down. Um, I was under the impression it was, there were three choices. It was fully virtual, hybrid model, or in-person the whole time. But it sounds to me like you're saying, like the idea of having everyone there all, at least out the gate, seems pretty far-fetched, right? 
Oh, absolutely. I have 700 students. Absolutely. We are not doing that. <laughs> okay. I saw the um, a picture that you, I think, retweeted, or maybe I saw it on Facebook or wherever, some some social media platform. And um, it was a picture that a teacher took where she used cones to represent young children yes. in the hallway. And it, and it basically, yes. one line was the way a line of children would normally be. So those cones were obviously close mm-hmm. together. And they took up, I don't know, 30 feet, 40 feet, maybe. And then the line next to it of cones those children or cones were spread out in a safe manner, a social distance manner. I mean, the and line that's terrifying and the line took up the entire hallway and, and then multiply that terrifying. by 30 classrooms. And, and yeah. right. And, and you can't see everyone in the line. You can't monitor what you need to monitor when they're that far away from you. So it's going to be interesting for the elementary schools that touched my heart because thinking about my sweet babies at my former school, I mean, if you have 28 kindergartners in a class, you know, I think 28 is the cap. Maybe it's 26. But still, um, the picture that I t- retweeted was a line with 15 children. Right. Just not not. And even it went the class, all yeah. the way down the hall. Now, uh, speak- you're basically saying 15 times six feet. Right. Exactly. And that is quite the distance. So the um, Oregon uh, has rolled out their blueprint kind of for. Um, getting back to class and and they're similar to like what we've been talking about the hybrid model the in-person or or just all virtual um, but I always kind of look for like those little nuggets that might be something that maybe a district hasn't thought of and the one thing mm-hmm. I saw in there I, I hadn't thought of this I'm sure lots of educators out there did but they, they're going to use their elementary music teachers because they know this is going to be hard to, mm-hmm. to, to kind of drill into the younger kids heads but they're going to use those music teachers to compose songs to teach mm-hmm. younger children about physical distancing and how to properly wash their hands. I mean, is that, have you heard this discussed or is this the first? Well, we have talked about how we're going to remind students about their personal hygiene and social distancing, as well as, um, you know, just social emotional supports. And what we talked about is that um, activity classes or what you call an elementary school specials, like the music teacher, Mm -hmm covering that in the special classes. And then like on the middle school level, we intend to do some of those things through science and social studies. And then on the high school level in our district, we have what's called a gap period, kind of like a homeroom check-in. It's some learning strategies type, you know, 40 minute course, using that time to go over those things with them. So we have talked about that. And in elementary school, everything is a jingle. Right. No, no kidding. Uh, our friend, um, Russ Davis, uh, the CEO of School Status, uh, he tweeted, um, looks like a chart from the Texas Education Agency. And, yes. and it was about all the, I guess you'd call it the PPE that they're ordering for their schools. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw out some numbers here real quick. Disposable mask looks like they're ordering 50 million gloves, 10 million thermometers, 40,000 infrared and no contact hand sanitizer, 500,000 gallons. Um, yeah. And then it has some other tentative stuff in terms of like face shields and desk dividers. Um, good on them to be doing that. Right. You would agree. That's true, but it's expensive, right? It's extremely expensive and it makes us jump into the equity discussion, which that is not what our session is about today, but some school districts, their funding is much greater than others. That's Mm -hmm. number one. Number two, because their funding is much greater, there are many districts out there that are already one-to-one. So they've already decided that they're going to be able to go virtually, or they are already, you know, one-to-one in a point where they can house, you know, a large number of children within the building. 
and be able to purchase all of the PPE. Um, that's that's something that has been kind of a stressful discussion for our district. And even if we identify the funds, so many items are on back order. As of right now, we can't even get Chromebooks until probably January. If we put the order in today, we still probably won't get them until January. Right. I mean, we could go on and on about, um, you know, just the access to everything. That is its own issue. Yeah. But then it's it's the cost. And, and, and the, the problems are twofold. It's like districts are going to have to come up with more money to do what's needed, what's right. And at the same time, well, there's less money at the state There's level, less money because state and, taxes have just been taking a hit for the past few months. Well, they have. And if you actually um, didn't know, there are actually some districts who are furloughing teachers and staff members to try to recoup and, and, and make their budgets expand so that they can afford to reopen. It's a scary time. Um, another thing that districts are, are doing is communicating with their, their local businesses, seeing what type of donations they can get, what kind of grants they can write, because in our state, we know our allocations for the CARES um, funding for our school districts, but we have to submit our response plan. There's a number of different hoops you have to jump through to even, you know, be considered for the release of your funds. So in the meantime, um, we're waiting to see, is it possible to use funds up front and then replace those funds with the CARES money when it comes in, put it back into the, you know, the different accounts that it might come out of. So all of that has been discussed in our district. And I'm sure that it's been discussed all across the nation. What can we do now with the funding we are already receiving? And then we'll put it back. Well, yeah. And I think that funding, yeah, it's pretty restrictive though, right? Like it has to be used. Very. Right. So so it has to be used, I guess, mainly probably for, for distance learning, essentially, is probably the well, general distance term. learning, but it's still focusing on safety and preparation and instruction okay. in a pandemic. Okay. So PPE and all the things you need to make your building safe are a part of providing instruction in a pandemic. And they want you to, to prepare for one-to-one in case of a total school shutdown. So see, you have to have two plans. It's the school closure um, plan slash, you know, school closure slash distance learning plan that you're developing. But within that plan, you have to have an alternative um, to school closure plan. So our plan is the alternative, either the, you know, the hybrid, hopefully. And then, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, come September, October, we're going to be shut down. There's going to be a resurgence of, um, you know, cases and being prepared to completely shut down and provide high quality instruction. Schools did their absolute best this spring, but let's be realistic. Many school districts just were not in the position to provide virtual learning. That's where you, why you well, didn't have the time. Word. I mean, let alone no, the, but the, the resources. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it that's why you kept hearing the word packets. Right. So, you know, we're going to continue to provide the packets also, but we're trying to make plans to be able to teach virtually so that when it hits, it doesn't catch us off guard. We've established a whole new professional development plan because you have to think about it. While we have a lot of young teachers that are real snazzy with a lot of the different pieces of technology, apps or whatnot, you have a lot of teachers that are not. So intensive professional development has to be provided, but not just for teachers. So, so, parents. The, so that's even more money. The Tennessee Department of Education Commissioner Penny Schwinn testified virtually before the U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. Uh, I think they're known hmm. as HELP. And, and as part of the committee hearing, um, she made the argument that in order for at least their state to pay for the PPE, 
the disinfectant and other things that it takes to kind of keep the school clean is going to cost an right. additional one hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars per student. And yes. you know, in in a typical economy, I would say maybe states could help find that. But I'm glad she's testifying to you know actual U.S. legislators, the U.S. Senate, because the federal government's going to have to step up here because states are even further than what they've already identified as part of the CARES funding. They're going to have to come up with more. I, I am concerned that states, in many cases, are going to be broke. I mean, again, their tax dollars have to be down. We just don't know that for a fact yet. I don't know if those numbers we, have been running. Well, you might not know it for a fact because it's not on paper, but you know it for a fact. Let's talk about all the different industries. Um, and companies that have right. announced that they're they're closing, they're going bankrupt. Right, exactly. I, we have not. You know, malls are open, but many stores are oh, not. Yeah. No, yeah, the sales tax in general. I mean, just it, it's going to affect cities and the state. Um, mm-hmm. um no doubt. Uh, um, you know, the impact that restaurants have ha- had for two months. Basically, yes. things. You know, I know. I don't know about you, but my personal spending dramatically dropped during quarantine. It was it, that was like the silver lining for me was we had a better month. Yeah. You know, we saved a little bit, but that hurts. Well, state. absolutely. <laughs> I went to the bank today and was shocked at my. My balance. And then I thought about it. Right. What money have I spent other than obviously gas and groceries? But that of ultimately, I think, will hurt states which have to fund schools and, and, and so forth. Yes. So so we're, we're in a tough spot here. I like that um, whatever organization it is that represents schools, whether lobbying groups or just actual superintendents and commissioners and so forth, are already, uh, for lack of a better term, getting in line. I think they should. After watching the government just hand out $500 billion without any accountability, um, and we'll never know, apparently, according to uh, Mnuchin, where that money is going to go, uh, I think schools deserve uh, certainly a large piece of the pie to pay for what's needed as we head into the next semester. Well, I really thought with what we showed America, I'm referring to educators, Mm -hmm. and how flexible we can be, how we didn't, you know, just drop the ball. A lot of people thought teachers just, you know, kind of at home on vacation, but their days were longer. They were communicating electronically a whole lot more. They had to do a ton of research and figure things out overnight. And that also helped with the sanity of children. Um, I think parents have a greater appreciation for teachers now. But with that being said, it is not going to show in teacher salaries. It's not going to show in um, funding for education. Unfortunately. Oh, I mean, we we saw the recent election here in Mississippi. Most of our state level legislators are elected on an off year. So it was this past November. And, um, you know, funding education was the big talking point. And surprisingly, it was on both sides of the aisle. You know, we're going to do this. Mm-hmm. That talk has gone quiet. Unfortunately, it's over. There will be no raise for our teachers in the state of Mississippi. And we already know we fight every year about how we want, um, you know, education to be fully funded. It's going to be cut. Yeah, it it looks that way. But I think if the federal government would step up, I think they should, uh, you know, and maybe the cuts would be minimal if there are any at all. That's that's would be a perfect scenario. You know, I get it would be I get everybody may not get raises, but at the same time, like this is a crisis and, well, and, I just want them to fully fund education uh, if we can't get raises, but so that the school budgets aren't cut, which means teachers spend even more out of their pockets. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's without a doubt ridiculous. So there was a um, a blurb on Twitter about um, Dr. Kerry Wright, the head of the uh, Mississippi Department of Education. And apparently somebody from Starlink reached out to her um, about at least having a conversation. Are you familiar with what Starlink is? 
No. So this is um, another Elon Musk venture. And, you know, he, he <laughs> sends he sends these um, spaceships into space. Sometimes yeah. it's not on behalf of NASA. It's He's launching satellites, like 30 at a time. And he's building a um, network of satellites that will provide internet all across the country and ultimately the world, including rural areas um, with mm-hmm. this new technology. Looks like we're still probably about another year to two years out from it being you know, feasible, but ideally it would be what you would call 5G type speeds right? everywhere. It doesn't matter where a tower is, like it's going to find you in a rural area. And people are freaking out about the 5G. Right. (laughs) But, but saying that the fact that Starlink and Mississippi are talking, Mississippi's a good state to talk to because they they serve a lot of students in rural areas. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that conversation's happening is because we may find ourselves in a year again, where people in rural areas need to have access to high-speed internet, and this might be a good partnership. So again, this was just a blurb on Twitter, so I'm curious to see if anything actually comes of it, but that could be a good story going down the road if if somehow they were to team up to kind of test a new uh, potential service and, uh, you know, provide it to the students that need it. Yeah, we're going to have to track that. Yep. Um, So uh, that's about it for today. Are you ready for the bright idea? Always ready. Our guest in today's Brand Idea segment is a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Nancy Hoffman is also a vice president and senior advisor at Jobs for the Future, a national nonprofit based in Boston, focused on improving educational and workforce outcomes for low-income young people and adults. And she's here to talk about her new book, Teaching Students About the World of Work. Dr. Hoffman, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. Uh, I, as I was reading through your very impressive resume, I see that you have several ties to some of the great four-year institutions the United States has to offer. So on the surface, uh, one might assume, or I guess I assume, that you're probably a strong proponent of the four-year university system. But as I was kind of working through your book, teaching students about the world of work, it appears that you are equally in favor, or if not, maybe even more so in favor, of a two-year community college system that is a pathway to a career. Am I correct in this assessment? Uh, Well, you're not incorrect, let's put it that way. I think the liberal arts education is, is a wonderful thing. And it's not something that everyone has to give up if they start in a two-year institution. But if you gave me a choice between a young person growing up in poverty and a young person uh, getting a two-year degree and skills with the option of going on to further education at some point, I would certainly choose the latter. So uh, it would be great if everyone who would like to go off to the what used to be the, the sheltered place of a, a residential four-year college and, and read great books and learn computer science, that's an option for relatively few people in the United States. And is that really your motivation um, for, for what you do with JFF and writing this book? Absolutely. Uh, by the, this book, by the way, while the while the title is teaching students about the world of work, the subtitle is a challenge to post secondary educators, and that's this. So this is not a book that's about what you should teach students. It's a book raising questions for faculty, liberal arts, and other faculty about what students should know about everything from the role of work in human lives to how careers are built and what labor market information is and how social capital operates. And in general, 
many faculty, especially those who are who, who should be helping their students think about the labor market, uh, are relatively ignorant about that and don't think of ways to connect student learning in the disciplines or in skills courses directly with the world of work and careers. Well, how did we get there? How did we have that disconnect? Um, well, I think we had that, I would say probably until maybe maybe a few years before the, the recession of 2008, which now seems like 100 years ago, mm-hmm. what we used to say is get a college degree and everything will be all right. So there are two ways in which we got to where we are now. One is that the recession said a lot to people about um, what what kind of education is recession-proof. And many, many liberal arts graduates found themselves unemployed or underemployed. And so we began to have a much greater emphasis on skills. At the same time, the cost of higher ed has been rising largely because the state portion in public higher ed has gotten much smaller and probably among the elite institutions because they can. So you had rising costs um, without the result of good jobs always at the end. And that got people more focused on uh, the relationship between education and work. The other is that Really, until this, uh, the, the 21st century, community colleges have always existed, but without a great deal of support or visibility. And as people began to uh, push for more low-income young people to go to school, and they began to look at the data because they were interested in combating growing inequality, they saw that relatively few students who started in community colleges actually graduated, that many community colleges had strong workplace programs, but many of them were not well aligned with labor market needs. So the community college has gotten uh, a higher profile and has become, as the data shows, a really good option for a first career, since if you get technical skills, um, although we'll see what happens next in the COVID economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Until then, um, getting good technical skills would land you a job and enable you at least to provide for yourself and make some decisions about what you wanted to do next. Before a student is even has to make that decision of, you know, am I going to go to a community college or a four-year university or or not at all? I mean, I know a lot of times... Uh, a student will, you know, they'll apply for their their grants, and and sometimes they're offered loans, or often they're offered loans as well, and and they have to make that decision of whether or not, you know, I, I sign on to this loan. Do you think we're educating those kids, those students, well enough about what it means to take on that debt and and what they're going to get on the other side of that debt? I would say there is a continuum. If you have parents who understand the labor market and who are not immigrants, so are familiar with, you know, the, the funding system and how loans get paid back, you probably can do quite well with a loan. But for low income students, we see over and over again, many of them are sold the notion that just get a college degree, take a loan if you need to. And everything will be fine. And then, of course, it isn't, especially if you can't get 
a well-paying job or you have some disaster in your family where having no assets or savings uh, puts you in financial jeopardy. I know in the book you talk a lot about positioning work at the center of community college, but but what does that mean? What does that look like? When students come into community colleges, they're given tons of information. And it's it's not derelict that you come in and nobody gives you any information. You're given lots of information about how to study, where the career service office is, what kind of jobs there are. Uh, you probably will see an advisor or take some kind of inventory of interests. But that is not enough. And then many students just pick a major and don't see anyone in career services till the end of their their education, if at all. Career service offices are understaffed and generally in some dark hallway that r- rarely people <laughs> can find. Strata has done some interesting um, focus groups and interviews about the use of career services. I think it's about 20% of students in college who use them. Um, not the fault of career services alone, But the notion that you go to college to get a career means that you need to be thinking not just in, uh, say, a a programming course or a course for a radiology technologist, but in a variety of courses about what what preparation for work is, and not necessarily in just an instrumental way, although that is useful. But you know, why do you want to work? What, what, why, how do people earn their livings? What are the basic needs that work serves? What are the, what are the higher needs, as one of the chapters uh, discusses? And this is a, a topic about which, most, about which many, many colleges, community colleges and four-year colleges, are relatively silent. The last thing I would say, though, about in well-funded institutions, and particularly four-year ones, because this almost doesn't exist in two-year institutions, there are internships both on campus and off. You can work in a lab and see if you like being a scientist. You can go work in a business that uh, in the summer that belongs to an alum. There are almost no uh, widespread internship opportunities available in community colleges. And those are the students who often need, or I would say who need the most to explore the the world of work. So there are myriad things that colleges should do and can do to help students not just see the degree as an endpoint, but a career, citizenship, uh, a, a satisfying economic existence. I think if you would talk to most professors at a community college or even a a four-year university, they would understand that goal and they would probably have that goal in mind. And the the goal of being, I'm here to to prepare this student for the workforce in the best way I possibly can, but clearly it's not happening or you probably wouldn't be writing this book. And, And so what is systemically broken? Yeah. First of all, I don't think I agree with you. Okay. Um, for in the elite colleges, professors are, are generally preparing their best students to be what they are. So historians and literary critics and uh, biologists, without thinking much, particularly in the liberal arts, about what you're going to to do. Most most of those. I mean, I I have a PhD in comparative literature, so I, I don't remember anyone ever talking to me about what I might do for work. And the only thing I could think of to do after I graduated was go to graduate school and get a PhD in comparative literature. Right. 
so I, 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 I don't think anyone wishes students ill or thinks that it's not a good question to ask what you're going to do. But I have talked to many uh, professors in both community colleges and four-year institutions who say, my goal is to teach my discipline. And what the student does with it is for them to figure out or for career services or an advisor to help them with. And I don't disagree entirely with that. But I do think that, for example, uh, Bunker Hill Community College in Boston that we work with a lot has learning communities for entering students. And it's really beginning to try and think through how do you keep this career conversation going throughout a student's education. So one of the, so they're doing two different things. I've been very involved with Gutman Community College. It's a new community college, part mm -hmm. of the CUNY system. There's a chapter about uh, their ethnographies of work course. So that's a liberal arts course that Bunker Hill has adapted. And it raises a wide range of questions about the world of work in an intellectual context but it has a lab that goes with it in which students think about how do I present myself? How do I write my resume? How do I do an elevator pitch? What do I say in an interview? But it's very much connected to this much broader context about what the labor market is and how jobs are developed and how careers happen. And we've done numerous focus groups and interviews with low-income students who really you know, they they believe the myth. I'm going to have six figures, one person said to me when I finish my two-year degree. That person is missing a lot of really important information and will have a rude shock. And it's very possible she can go through the whole community college uh, degree program and, and never really have anyone help them directly with that kind of question. I saw the chapter on Gutman Community College. Tell me a little bit yeah. more about them. And first, where are they located? Sure. So uh, that's City University of New York. It's the biggest public education system in a, the country, unless I'm missing the way uh, the UC system in California is built. But it's a huge system with 500,000 students. <laughs> so both community colleges and four-year institutions and major graduate schools. It used to be the sort of engine of, of economic mobility for immigrant groups coming into New York City, and it still plays that role in, in many ways. So maybe about 10 years ago, they started a brand new community college with a completely different design, and that's Gutman. And uh, it right now is located right in back of the New York Public Library on 40th Street in temporary facilities. And uh, but that's where you would find it. And the idea was to really respond to a lot of research about how students learn in general and more particularly about the constraints on low income students and what kind of education they need. It was designed really to prepare students for uh, careers in New York City. It's a New York City is a particularly uh, complicated or used to be complicated labor market, very bifurcated mm -hmm. with lots of low, in low income jobs and a lot of professional jobs. And Gutman, in a way, was attempting to prepare students for to get out of the low income jobs and in, into middle to higher wage jobs. So it's a it's a totally different uh, structure. 
and everyone takes the same courses and goes full time the first year. So ethnographies of work is one course. The second is a city seminar about New York. And a third one is statistics, if I'm remembering correctly. So if you were speaking to uh, a room full of community college professors, what would be your message to them about, you know, making sure their students are prepared for the workplace? You know, the thing that in some ways stands out the most is the lack of social capital that uh, that students, uh, that lo- low-income students, of course, have social capital. Every community has social capital, but there's a specific kind of social capital that is important in entering the labor market. And that ha- has to do with me- networking and making connections. And my guess about you is that somebody's called you in the last six months and said, do you know so-and-so? And And if so, could you tell me a little bit about X or Y? That happens all the time. I mean, I'm quite old, happens very frequently with the children of friends who call up, you know, perfectly politely and say, my mom said, you could help me. Um, I'm really trying to get this job in a, a research job at Harvard. That kind of social capital and the wherewithal to make those calls is very, very hard to come by in low-income communities. There's research that shows, first of all, that that low-income communities have networks, but the networks are quite closed. And you need to be able to access a network of higher status, actually, than your own in order to make those connections. And if anything... um, with LinkedIn and and all of the the uh, apps out there for preparing for the job market and finding people, connections have become more rather than less important. So that's one of the main things that we think students need to to learn about. And they they need those skills of uh, understanding how social capital works and then learning how to build it themselves and then acquiring those or deciding whether they want to acquire those professional skills uh, that are sort of, you know, being, being uh, middle class in the way you behave and, and in the way you manage yourself that, that are uh, signs to a potential employer who may give you a two second (laughs) Or look over in an interview or looking at your resume, they'll make a quick decision. You know, what, what's this person's name? Where did they go to school? And do they, do they fit? And fit can hide a, a, a lot of um, unconscious biases or direct biases that, that people read about social class, gender, race, education, and so forth. Well, well, Dr. Hoffman, I mean, it's such an important <laughs> message that I think you have here, and and I will do whatever I can to help uh, get that out to to community colleges and for your universities as well. And I, I mean, how do you plan on? I mean, beyond the book, kind of yeah. pushing this agenda, for lack of a better term. Sure. Well, uh, several ways. First of all, JFF has a very extensive community college practice, and my co-editor and author in the book, Michael Collins. Is, uh, is a senior person in the community college world, highly respected, out speaking all the time. And he was a terrific person to work with. And he brings these ideas to a network way, uh, 
way beyond the one that I have at this point, although I work a great deal with post-secondary educators as well. So that's, that's one way. The second thing is in more, more micro. Um, with two colleagues, I've been doing a good number of research papers about ethnographies of work. And we think that this is a wonderful curriculum and approach for students at community colleges and four-year colleges. So we are forming a learning community. We just had our first webinar. We have colleges participating at this point, really just word of mouth from New Jersey, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and New York, and actually Florida. So that's a second very concrete way, which is... Um, helping faculty to see the way in which a liberal arts course like ethnographies of work can introduce some of these important questions to students. Well, again, the uh, book is titled Teaching Students About the World of Work. And, and help me with the subtitle. It was a challenge to post-secondary educators. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. Well, again, if somebody wants to find the book, how can they go about doing that? Um, it's available on the Harvard Education Press website. And then uh, I say somewhat reluctantly, I'm sure they can order it through Amazon. Right. But I, I would really urge people to order it through the Harvard Ed Press. The, the cost is the same. And it's a actually a nonprofit per, press that is at Harvard, but not supported by Harvard. And uh, they, they would very much love to sell you the book. Uh, I love that. And I will actually link to that site rather than the Amazon site when we put it in the show notes. Um, Dr. Hoffman, are you ready for our pop quiz? Sure. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Writing. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Uh, social about social capital and the labor market. What does every child deserve? To to have a, an education that is practical and supports their passion, and that ends with their ability to make choices that they can realize that will lead to at least a middle income um, and a, a family supporting wage. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Dealing with uh, race and racism and poverty. What's the best gift to give an educator? That's, that's a tough one. Uh, my, my, my first reaction, because I'm a reader, is, a, is an unlimited uh, expense, expense account that allows them to buy books for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that'd be nice. At least 30 a year. But I also think it's empathy and compassion. Which the latter, I guess, is free to give, right? Absolutely. Um, and which teacher changed your life? Hmm. Well, it's a very long time ago. I am 78 years old. I, I would, I guess I would say... A professor who I had as an undergraduate and was my doctoral thesis ad ad advisor, whose name was Paul Alpers, he was a scholar of Edmund Spencer and Renaissance literature, but he in in encouraged me both to follow my passion, which was to go to Mississippi and work in the civil rights movement, um, and at the same time to continue studying Latin and Renaissance literature and get a PhD. And his field was pastoral, 
and somehow that's always stuck with stuck with me the notion that you should you you could have this mental place about pastoral as well as be an activist and out in the streets so i guess i would end by saying uh, despite the fact that it was hard to kneel for eight minutes and 49 seconds last night uh, at my age with creaky knees, I did it and I'll continue to as long as I can. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right. Again, Dr. Nancy Hoffman, we appreciate uh, all of your time and all the great work you're doing. Um, just, just love the message that you have. And uh, thank you for joining us on Class Dismissed. Well, thank you so much. This was actually very fun. You're a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>